0: Welcome to WarPod, a podcast brought to you by Safer World, asking international experts about the risks of contemporary conflict and how to address them. Every day, civilians suffer in violent conflicts. Attacks by armed forces, militias and rebel groups have left and continue to leave thousands dead or injured and have resulted in the forced displacement of millions of people. To mitigate or end such violations, different actors including NGOs, the UN, military forces, religious groups and community leaders often attempt to influence conflict parties to cease attacks on civilians and instead enhance their protection.
1: Focusing on preventive protection efforts that hinder future harms rather than mitigating the effects of past violations, the Global Public Policy Institute released a report called The Logic of Protection Approaches, Four Models to Safeguard Civilians from Harm. And the report asks, how do protection actors plan and conduct these activities to reduce violence at the hands of combatants?
0: I'm Abigail Watson, Conflict and Security Policy coordinator at Safe World.
1: And I'm Delina Gojo, Associate Fellow at Egmont and PhD candidate at Scuola Normale Superiore in Florence. In this episode, we speak to Yulia Steets, Director of the Global Public Policy Institute in Berlin, and Zumkan Ali, Research Director at the Institute of Regional and International Studies at the American University in Suleimania, Iraq. They discuss GPPI's practical models for better protecting civilians in conflict. So I would start with you, Julia. Why do you think international actors and local NGOs get involved in protection efforts?
2: Well, it's interesting because very clearly the main responsibility for protecting civilians is actually on states. In times of war, we have a specific body of law, the Geneva Conventions, that define quite precisely what what that means. Um, You have conventions that cover how to treat prisoners of war, for example, how to deal with the wounded and the sick, and you have one entire convention that is about the protection of civilians in in time of war. And it regulates things like um, it prohibits corporal punishments and torture. It also prohibits the deportation of people, it prohibits the destruction of property and offers quite a lot of special protections for children, for example. But in reality, states often do not exercise this responsibility to protect civilians. We all hear it in the news every day that civilians do in fact get killed, tortured, raped, their property destroyed, etc. And this is in some cases because the states, the governments do not really have the power to control and to rein in other actors who perpetrate these crimes. And in other cases, it's because the state or or forces associated with the the state are actually part of the ones who perpetrate these these crimes. So you have different settings, but in both, um, and this is unfortunately quite frequent, states do not exercise their responsibility to protect civilians fully. And that's where some of these actors that you described um, get into the picture from the United Nations to uh, the Red Cross. And the International Committee of the Red Cross has quite a specific um, mandate and responsibility here because it is the formal guardian of the Geneva Conventions. But they, along with human rights organizations, also local organizations do get in and try to address the situation. And in many cases, they try to address the harm that has been done and manage cases of people who have been harmed and and violated. But as you said in your introduction, what we looked at was really the other side of the coin, which is the part where people try to prevent this harm from happening in the first place, which means getting armed actors to behave in a different way and and to do fewer, fewer of these violations.
1: I was also wondering... Could you explain what the findings of the report were and how these international actors and local NGOs um, get involved in protection efforts?
2: So we first started looking at the global level and uh, tried to understand from really quite a broad variety of actors what they were doing, how they were trying to get these different armed actors to comply better with international law and to do less harm. And what we found is that Very generally speaking, you know, there are four broad categories of approaches to doing preventive protection. It starts with what we called naming and shaming. This is a very traditional approach where you collect evidence and you compile it about the violations that have taken place. You publish that or try to bring it to the attention of people who are in power or who have influence or who have been perpetrating the the crimes. And you remind the different armed actors about the duties and the obligations they have under international law. The hope, of course, is that people will accept that criticism and it will move them to to changing their behavior just by, by knowing that they have violated their obligations. This approach, naming and shaming, is often at the basis also of the other things than the more concrete activities that protection actors do. And one of these more concrete activities is an attempt to mobilize influencers. So if it is hard to get access to the military or to the militia that you want to influence directly, very often you see protection actors trying to find others, third parties, who do have leverage and try to get them on board and use their leverage over the armed actor in order to effect change. So if we look, I mean, we did our research in in Iraq, primarily if we look there, for example, you have a lot of internationals who try to speak to the embassies of the Western countries, particularly the US, for example, because it is a very influential actor in, in Iraq, and try to get them on board so that they in turn will exercise pressure, for example, on the prime minister to change certain things. You also had stories where international actors were trying to get access to Ayatollah Al Sistani. This is an influential cleric that has influence, or is believed to have influence over some militias, some brigades, and who has, in the past, issued a fatwa, for example, so a religious, religious advice um, on the behavior of of fighters, which obviously, for those who follow that Ayatollah, can be can be quite influential. Then a third approach, a third category uh, that we identified is for protection actors to work with communities in an attempt to strengthen the capacity of that community. So in most places, civilians aren't just passive victims, aren't just waiting for the armed actors to change their behavior. They usually take action and they usually try to find a way to reduce the things that that harm them. And here you have NGOs um, and sometimes also the UN getting in and trying to help communities organize this in a better way and perhaps build their capacity, for example, on negotiations, or sometimes find somebody who can act as a go-between between the community and the armed actors. So to really strengthen the capacity of the community to to do the negotiations with armed actors. And the final category we identified through our research is to train armed actors directly. Now, this has quite a broad range um, of of variations. Um, It goes from really providing lectures or workshops on international humanitarian law simply to explain what are the rules and make people more aware of them. It's can also extend to really be part of a much more broad and encompassing combat training. For example, helping armed actors to improve their targeting so that they hit fewer civilians. And sometimes it even stretches to providing armed actors with intelligence or hardware so that they can do better targeting. Obviously, that's less the the classic humanitarians who would do this sort of thing. It's more other militaries as part of their general support to a government or to 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 an army so these are the four main approaches that we found when we looked globally at what protection actors are doing in order to change the behavior of armed actors
0: thanks so much Yulia now Zemkan, it would be good to we've already s- briefly mentioned Iraq but it would be good to drill down into that example a bit more can you First of all, start by giving us a, a brief overview of what's currently happening in Iraq at the moment. What are the particular armed groups?
3: Yes. So, our study in our study, we focused on uh, what we call the post ISIS territories. These are large parts of include large parts of the Iraqi territories, uh, including governorates such as Diyala, Kirkuk, Salahuddin, and Nineveh. This is where we interviewed large numbers of citizens, and these citizens are expressing concern about the existence and presence of multiple security forces and armed groups, both state and non-state. Across these areas, to varying degrees, citizens are exposed to different types of armed group violence, including killing, kidnapping, torture, and verbal abuses at checkpoints. And this is, to us, astonishing, given the fact that the war with, with ISIS ended almost four years ago. Still citizens in, 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 in these areas suffer from these type of armed groups. The armed groups, there are a variety of armed groups, but the main ones that cause harm to civilian are what we call popular mobilization forces. The popular mobilization forces, they were formed during the fight against ISIS when ISIS emerged in June 2014. The Iraqi formal security forces collapsed or could not defend these territories against ISIS. Then these groups, these armed groups were formed and played a crucial role in supporting the Iraqi security forces against ISIS and in liberating their, these territories. But these armed groups did not leave. They stay and stationed close to the communities in post-ISIS territories. And they are a problem because uh, we call them hybrid armed groups, because they are only loosely connected to the state, but strongly tied to political factions and uh, regional states uh, like Iran. And these armed groups, uh, they have control over the means of violence that they use it outside the state's framework and interests because they have their own interests because they have their own strategic political economic goals that that they are not compatible with the state's interest Iraqi state's interest because these they have these ties beyond the state the state cannot control them when they cause harm when they use violence for their own purposes then It's hard to really control them and hold them accountable. So, for instance, you have part of Salahadin province in this area, or part of Diyala province, where these armed groups come and kill, kidnap, and torture citizens, largely from the Sunni Arab community. They are not held accountable. Of course, the state expresses concern about this. You see that the defense minister, the prime minister, the other state functionaries come to the area, they express support and sympathize with the, with the families of the victims, but they are unable to hold these armed groups accountable because they are, as I said, they are connected to large influential political parties and factions that are embedded within the state, that are representative within the uh, state's legislative and, and, and executive uh, branches that these, all these factors make the state weak vis-a-vis these armed groups.
1: Thank you very much, Zemkan. I, I want to go back to Yulia now and ask about the strengthening communities approach more. So how did this approach play out in Iraq?
2: This was very interesting. Internationally, when you look, there is a huge buzz around these community-based approaches, and it's quite clear why... This looks like really the way to go, perhaps, or the most promising approach. It's an approach where you recognize that that people have agency. You don't just see civilians and communities as victims. It's an approach that really wants to empower these civilians and quite often has a focus on particularly empowering women or members of minorities. And of course, that's something that is really important and we think needs to be part of any agreement. And in addition, once you empower a community, this will last. You know, you, you set up a system where into the future, even once the international actors leave, hopefully the communities will keep that capacity and be able to continue doing their negotiations in the way that they need. So because of these reasons, strengthening communities internationally, but also in Iraq, is the approach, I would say, that most people go for. But when we looked at the reality of how this actually works and plays out in, in practice, it came out beset with so many problems. Let me go through just a few. For once, many international actors are there only in the relatively short term. This is particularly true for humanitarians who often have projects you know, that range from half a year to a year, uh, maybe stretch into two years. And of course, if you want to work with a community and understand its capacity and then build them, you need more time. Secondly, the efforts that we saw were very fragmented. So we came across some communities where you had a multitude of internationals all setting up their own community committees, all setting up their own processes that were running in parallel. And obviously, that doesn't really help to create something that that works. In addition, it wasn't always clear whether in the areas where people were trying to do this, there was actually the political space for communities to have an influence. And probably Zimkan will tell us more about this later. But this varies hugely from from one place to another in Iraq. And we have international actors who do not necessarily have that micro-level understanding of what the political situation is and whether a community has a reasonable chance to influence an armed actor or not, and therefore whether it makes sense to try and strengthen that community and, and how. But to me, the biggest kind of conundrum and problem about this strengthening communities approach is that we find almost all organizations at the moment taking a top down approach to strengthening communities. And that's a contradiction in terms. So you will find the one organization who says, okay, we have a project and we managed to get funding for a project that seeks to strengthen the protection of this of civilians. The next one will say our mandate and the funding we have is for peacebuilding or creating social cohesion or some other such thing. And the organizations will always need to and want to get that goal and that progress along that line out of the community. But if you take community-based approach seriously, obviously you need to let the community itself set the priorities. And I've not found a way around this conundrum that the way we do community-based approaches at the moment is top-down. And in the end, when you look at the situation in Iraq, it emerges that you can do community-based approaches well in areas that have fairly strong local governance systems already. But if those exist, to me, the question is, what is the need for international support? And in areas where these governance systems don't exist, it's really, really hard to create them. Just by setting up a temporary committee, you will not change power structures or get to real kind of channels of of influence unless you're there to build that governance system overall. And that, of course, is something that is way broader and takes much, much longer than most protection actors can do
0: can can I sort of flip this question back to you? Like we've talked about how it's playing out differently in different contexts around the country and maybe that plays into how there might be differences in community approaches. You mentioned some examples earlier of where civilians are being targeted. Is there places in Iraq where the situation is completely different?
3: Yes, definitely. So not all areas are the same in terms of civilians. The violence that are directed at the civilians, so civilians in other, while it mentioned that there were areas where civilians are suffering from extreme violence, such as killing, kidnapping, and torture in other areas. For example, Tikrit city, Mosul city, these are two large cities inhabited by members of the Sunni Iraqi Sunni community. These are the areas citizens enjoy a level of protection. And our study shows that this protection that these citizens enjoy in these cities are a result of political negotiations between either political negotiations or using political organizations that back these communities to prevent the armed groups to come and cause harm to to civilians. So for instance, in Takrit City, the, the community enjoys the backing of a political organization that has some level of control over the local government institutions and had relationships with the factions that control the armed groups. So this political faction was able to negotiate some form of protection saying that you have the right to be around this area, to be involved in the economy of the area, to extract from the local economy, but give us the right to rule this area and do not come and kill in the daylight citizens of this city. So that led to some form of protection for the civilians. In the case of Mosul, you always had in the post-2003 period, you always had a an assertive local political movement that wanted to defend the rights of the Sunnis in Mosul city. That political movement had relationship with the United States with national factions and uh, such as the Kurdistan Democratic Party, the KDP, which is an influential political organization in that area. And with state like Turkey, this local political organization was able to mobilize all these rela- local and regional relationships in order to prevent the PMFs, the Popular Mobilization Forces, the armed groups, to come to the city, and that kind of situation, condition where the citizens inside the city enjoy this protection, continue to this day. It is still precarious, but the, the situation for the civilians is better than areas like Salahaddin or Diyala, where it's quite precarious, where where, where citizen can be killed, where the protection that they enjoy can disappear in a second. In, in, in Takrit and in Mosul, citizens enjoy this form of protection because of the political backing they have from the political organization that uh, gained this protection.
1: And how, just to go a little deeper on this, um, I mean, this negotiation power, this negotiation impetus, how do you explain it exactly? I mean, there is, uh, you mentioned political structures. Can you tell us a little bit more?
3: Yes. So the negotiations is based on mutual interest between this local Sunni organization, which comprises MPs, politicians, and local political parties. The mutual interest between these local organizations and the factions that control the armed groups. So for the armed groups, what they gain from these negotiations is that they can be around, Because they aim for territorial control, they aim for strategic control, they aim for economic gains and votes and support during elections. The negotiations resulted in these armed groups gaining all these gains for themselves, political, economic, strategic, in return for not going right to the city and killing citizens, harming citizens frequently and often, as often as it happened in other areas. So this type of negotiations are deals are informal. You don't see it. It's not written anywhere, but it does provide some form of security and protection for the locals.
0: Thanks so much. Both of you have already unpicked some of the pros and cons of the different models that you looked into in the report. I'd like to ask, what are the most important takeaways from this research for you? What Policy recommendations emerge that you think are, are most pertinent and would be the big takeaway.
2: I think really the cross-cutting element that comes out as the the most clear one is that doing any kind of intervention that tries to influence the behavior of armed actors does require a level of understanding of the context that is really quite detailed. I think at the moment what we see is that. A lot of organizations have perhaps a general understanding at the country level or the, the regional level and perhaps have a rough idea of what actors are around. But that more detailed local understanding of of a context of how much space is there, who has which linkages and which interests, um, that is often lacking. And it's, of course, something that, is not easy to do for particularly, I'm thinking about humanitarians that come in quite quickly when something happens. Um, you know, you are redeployed from a completely different context. It's, it's not easy to do that. Um, and therefore, there's a, a question there on who can have that context understanding and perhaps help the others get in. But to me, that's one of the big takeaways is that the level of context understanding that you need. And the level of political analysis you need to do is quite a lot more than what most organizations that, at least I have seen, do at the moment. Then perhaps a takeaway regarding this naming and shaming activities. This is something where I believe we started out with a fairly skeptical note, thinking, you know, we see a lot of organizations putting so much effort into gathering data. And then we weren't quite sure what what actually happens with this data. Is is this evidence on violations really used? And what we come away with after the study in Iraq is quite a clear picture that actually that's a very valuable activity. And that's an, an area where also international organizations can play a good role because they can pull together evidence from different sources and consolidate that check it and corroborate it, give it credibility and and legitimacy by collating it and cross-checking it. And they can provide almost like a shield between some of the local organizations that find that data, but that would be very exposed to uh, potential pushbacks or retaliation even from armed actors. And so we heard a, a lot of, smaller organizations in particular, local organizations that said, this is something where the internationals have really helped us by bringing together all this data and protecting us um, in in the context where we operate. Now, regarding the community-based approaches, I mean, you will have heard from from my earlier explanation, this is perhaps the finding that I find hardest to digest or hardest to translate into a concrete policy recommendation as well. I mean, clearly, community-based approaches, if you do them, do need to be more genuinely bottom-up rather than top-down. They need the long-term engagement of organizations, and they need a consolidated or just one organization doing that, not that fragmented field of actors that gets engaged. But how you can do that with the current organizational structures in humanitarian and development organizations is really difficult, particularly because the funding element always comes in. And as most organizations only get funding for a specific purpose, and that makes it very hard for them to really embrace a genuine bottom-up approach where the community is in the driver's seat and brings in the internationals where needed. Perhaps the easiest area for a policy recommendation and a takeaway is the training of armed actors, because it's so clear that all sides could benefit massively by overcoming silos. We brought together just a few weeks ago in Erbil um protection actors, humanitarians, peace builders, and some military uh, people. And it was amazing just how different the planets were that these different groups lived on. And it's clear that if they spoke to each other more, and if they tried more consciously to use synergies that there are. So, for example, if the humanitarians approach the Western militaries that do large, large, large large-scale capacity building for the Peshmerga and also for other military entities in, in Iraq and manage to integrate international humanitarian law more at the core of this big training, that would be so much more powerful than continuing to work in parallel. So that's a very easy takeaway for me is, try to overcome these silos and really use synergies between different actors
0: that do training and capacity building for for armed actors. To jump in there, the comment that you made about bringing those actors together in training really resonates with some of the work that we've done at Safe World and that Delina has done. And particularly, we've noted the problems of militaries doing large-scale capacity building, which doesn't do anything to address the political drivers of conflict, or as you say, It can be a PowerPoint presentation in IHL, and we do plenty of them, or in human rights training, but we don't do enough to make it integral to the training or bring in those other actors.
1: Zimkan, I want to ask you the same question that Abby just asked Yulia. What policy recommendations would you suggest?
3: Yes, uh, actually, just to reiterate what Yulia said about the political context, what we learned about the Iraqi context is that politics and protection are quite interlinked. We often hear from scholars of protection that place the agency in the community itself and recommends that humanitarian actors to go and provide support to the community for itself to approach the armed actors and kind of uh, extract some form of protection from these armed actors. We believe through the case of Iraq, politics and political dynamics are really important in how to help in introducing restraint into the actions of armed actors. In the context of Iraq, it's really hard to find community leaders, organizations that are not attached to some form of political organizations, to some form of vested political interests, both the community and the armed actors, so to generate some effect on the ground you really need to approach these political groups and understand the political context. Without that, you won't be able to, I, I would really doubt it, at least in the context of Iraq, you would be able to understand or generate change on the ground. So as I referred to before, the type of the armed actors that exist and cause harm to civilians, they are tied to political interests, both domestic and regional and the communities themselves the form of the degree of protection they enjoy has been because of their ties to political organizations that has been able to either prevent through their local and international links to prevent armed groups from coming to the these areas in the case of Mosul or in the case of the where you have a political factions negotiating a form of protection with the with the leaders and the commanders and the political parties that control the armed groups. So, politics is important to understand again.
0: Thank you, Yulia and Zumkan. That's all we have time for today. And thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. Until next time, from me, Abigail Watson. And me, Delina Gojo. Goodbye warpod from safer world you can listen to all previous episodes and catch the latest releases every month wherever you get your podcasts by searching for and following warpod and to find out more about our work at safer world please visit saferworld.org.uk